Meredith and I began our ministry um, about 18 years ago in uh, student ministry. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and so several years ago, we led a trip of teenagers, a missions trip to downtown Philadelphia. We spent about a week serving alongside a local church in uh, the parks and on street corners and really in some of the rougher neighborhoods in Philly. In fact, one of the street corners that we spent time on, we were there for several days giving away food and talking to people about Jesus, was at that time called the busiest drug corner in the country. And we were there. And after a busy day uh, in the middle of the week um, of ministry and of hard work in the hot sun, we got back in our rental vans, you know, 215 passenger vans in the inner city. Uh, We stuck out like a sore thumb, but we jumped back into those vans and we headed to a fast food restaurant real quick before we went back to our hotel where we were going to be spending the night. And because we were all so tired and because we'd worked so hard, I said, listen, uh, teenagers, listen, just grab something to eat real quick, get back in the vans, and then we'll get back to the hotel and we'll get you know, into our rooms and we'll, we'll go to bed. We've got a long day tomorrow. So a few minutes later, sure enough, the teenagers are all back in the vans. And I look over at the youth leader that's driving the other van and he's behind the steering wheel, I'm behind the steering wheel in our van. And I give him the thumbs up and everybody's here. So we started driving away and we got back to the hotel And about an hour later, I got a call on my cell phone. I didn't recognize the number, but at that point, not many people had cell phones, and I had told all of our students they're not allowed to bring their phones. You know, I didn't want it to be a distraction. Uh, That made me a really favorite youth pastor. So, uh, listen, I thought I'd better answer the phone because it could be somebody that really needed something, maybe an emergency. And uh, so I picked up the phone, and on the other line was uh, the father of one of the guys that was on the trip with us. And he started asking questions about the week. How's it going? How's the ministry? How are you doing as the leader of the team? And I thought, wow, this is so nice. How encouraging for this guy to call me in the middle of the week. And he knows we're tired. He knows we're kind of down here alone. And I thought, this is just real encouragement from this guy. Thank you so much. After a couple minutes, we talked. He said, hey, would you mind if I talk to my son real quick? Could you hand him the phone? I said, sure thing, no problem. So I went next door to where I had told his son to be. That was his assigned room for the evening, and he wasn't there. There were a couple other guys in the room, but he wasn't there. And uh, I went to the room next door to them and couldn't find him there. And sure enough, I walked down every room in the hallway, and he wasn't anywhere to be found. And so I had the father on the phone the whole time, you know, and I said, hey, just give me a second. I'll run downstairs. He must be in the lobby, you know, talking to some other teenagers or playing games or something. I'll go find him. Don't worry about it. This father on the other line said, uh, hey, don't worry about going to find him. I know exactly where he is. Now, we're in Philadelphia. It's almost three hours away from where our church is and where this father is. I said, how in the world do you know where your son is? He said, well, he just called me. You left him at Wendy's two hours ago. (laughs) So he and another student. Now, oh, okay. No, don't do that. It was their fault. Okay. What in the confusion of getting into two vans, they had still been in the restaurant, and so we got in the vans, and I looked at the other driver, he looked at me, that he thought he had everybody, I thought I had everybody, and sure enough, we went back to the hotel without them. And so I jumped right in the van after hanging up from this father who was extremely gracious, and I pulled into the Wendy's parking lot, and needless to say, when I, when I picked them up, they were feeling pretty lonely, he and this other guy that we had left there. They were confused, they were hopeless, in fact, they were kind of frustrated, to be honest. And one of them looked at me as I pulled up and he said, Jason, did you forget us here? <laughs> you know, I, I can relate to those guys. There are times when I feel like I've been forgotten. I remember when my family moved back from South Africa to the United States and 
I was a teenager and I thought, God, what in the world are you doing? I mean, my friends are all there. My future, what I thought you wanted for me was all over there. And here we are living in, you know, small town Indiana. And what are you doing? Are you even there? Do you even pay attention to my life? Or when Meredith and I got married and we tried to have kids for 10, 11, 12 years and it just seemed like God wasn't paying attention to us. I mean, why not, God? Have you forgotten about us? Or when we sat four separate times in four separate hospitals after having four separate miscarriages. And we looked at each other and said, are we all alone down here? And maybe you're tempted to ask that right now. Maybe for you, it's, um, it's a job. And maybe you're here this morning or listening online and, and you're thinking, you know, I've got this job, but I hate it. It just seems like I'm showing up day after day after day, clocking in, clocking out, and it's like nobody would even notice if I didn't show up tomorrow. Or maybe for you, it's your marriage. Sure, there, there are good times, but you and your spouse are pretty much just biding your time, you know, for the kid's sake. Or maybe you're a teenager here this morning, a high schooler, and everybody else in your class, I mean, we're at that time of year, right? Everybody else seems to know what they're doing in their future, and it's all you can do just to get your locker open and close every day. God, have you forgotten us? Are you even there? Listen, if you feel like that this morning, I, I don't think you're alone. We're in Genesis chapter 8. We're in this series called In the Beginning. I think there's a guy named Noah in the Old Testament that probably felt a little like you and I may feel at times too. In fact, God told Noah, we learned last week in Genesis chapter 7, to, to build an ark. An ark, this is a great ship that was as long as one and a half football fields. In fact, it was such a huge task that it took Noah and his three sons 120 years to build it. By the way, can you imagine being one of Noah's sons? That guy's your dad? Oh man, he is a weirdo. He's, all the other dads are out with the livestock and in the fields and doing their trade, and Noah's climbing ladders to build an ark, a giant ship that no one had ever seen, to save his family from a flood that no one had ever experienced, a flood that would come from rain that no one had ever seen before. I mean, here's Noah. Teenagers, you think your parents are weird? I mean, imagine being Noah's kids. There had to be moments in there that Noah and his family wondered, hey, um, God, just checking here, but you're still with us, right? I mean, it's been 120 years, and I'm building this ark and pronouncing judgment on all of our friends, and I uh, just check in here, but this is still the plan, right? This ark thing, we're still together on this? Then came the animals. I mean, this just must have been pretty weird. Right? It had to be pretty strange to watch the animals two by two coming into the ark. And then the day comes where Noah calls his family together and he says, it's time. So there's Noah, his wife, and their three sons, and their three sons' wives, and they all head into the ark. And then God shuts them in. And here's where the story gets really interesting. Because those of us that might have grown up in church or churches like Sailorville Church, and maybe you've read or heard the story a couple times over the years, the story of Noah and the flood, we have this picture that, that the rain began to fall softly, right? 
And then eventually the rain pooled into these little puddles and those puddles formed little streams and these streams into bigger streams and eventually rivers and lakes and ponds and they came together and eventually there was this glassy sea. And there's Noah and his family up on the top deck of the ark, like a cruise ship, they're getting suntans next to the pool, drinking mixed fruit drinks, you know, every day and there's dolphins jumping on the side of the ark and oh man, it's just such a great time. That's called flannel graph theology. It's not always like that, right? Because that's not the scene here at all. Picture this. God shuts them in. And there's Noah's family. I kind of imagine them huddled together, maybe arm in arm. Maybe they've got their arms around each other, and they're surrounded by animals. And then nothing. Nothing. God shuts the door, and then for seven days, nothing. Hey, uh, Dad, did God by any chance mention like when the rain was going to start? Or maybe like how long we'd be in here? I mean, this is a little weird, right? But nothing. And Noah responds, no, we just need to have faith. See, we've walked with God our whole lives. We're going to continue walking with God no matter where he has us. All we need to do is obey. He won't ever forget us. And so then softly the rain does begin to fall. And then harder and harder. And they can hear it now beating on the sides of the wooden ark. The animals, they've never seen or heard rain. They can smell it. They they start to get restless. Outside the townspeople that just days ago were jeering and mocking Noah and his family are now beating on the side of the ark. Let us in! The storm all at once has made every one of them a believer. The winds begin to howl outside as the storm gets worse and worse, drowning out the wails and the cries of those getting swept away by the great rising waters. Never before had anyone seen anything like this. It was as if the water was forcing its way up through the ground itself, bursting forth with incredible force. It was as if someone had opened up the sky And rain was just pouring down out of the heavens. For 40 days and 40 nights, the waters advanced like a great army capturing vast territories. God was at war with evil. And then as suddenly as it started, the rain just ended. It ended. Finally, it's over. I can hear his family saying, no, it's it's not going to be long now till we get out of this ark, right? Noah goes, right, God? Right, God? Right, God? Where are you? Silence. There in the silence stood Noah, day after day, alone in the deep. The ark slowly swaying back and forth like a a wooden coffin, aimlessly drifting in the middle of a vast ocean. Nothing but deep blue Death on all sides. No signs of their town. No signs of land at all. Nothing familiar. No signs of life. In fact, maybe most disturbing, no sign of God. See, Noah had heard last from God months ago when God had told Noah to take his family into the ark and then God had gone silent. And for me, 
God's silence would have been the most frustrating. God, I've walked with you my whole life. I mean, I poured 120 years into building this boat and pronouncing judgment on people. That was a ton of fun. And then I led my family and all these crazy animals into this ark, and then you slammed the door behind us. God, it's dark in here. It stinks in here. The animals smell bad. My sons smell worse. I'm starting to get a little lonely. There's no cell phone reception out here. You killed the pizza delivery guy. What am I supposed to do here? And there's no checking to make sure there's no leaks in the boat and cleaning up after the animals and watching for land and waiting, waiting, waiting. And I just hear Noah saying to God, God, that's, that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is it's just so quiet. I mean, there's the constant background noise of the animals. And of course, I talk to my family, but God, it's just so quiet out here. I want to hear from you, God. Speak to me again. God, you're the one that got us into this. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? That would be me. And maybe that would be you this morning. In fact, maybe it's a scene that sounds all too familiar to you this morning. Maybe it's your job. God, I I hate my job. Where are you? God, my marriage is falling apart and you're silent. God, my future is just so confusing right now. Tell me, why do I feel so alone in this struggle? God, miscarriages and divorce and death of a spouse and cancer and illness and bills piling up and addictions and hopelessness. God, I need you. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? But this morning, God says to you, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. Here it is, the the great linchpin of the whole story. Everything that we've learned about Noah and everything that we're going to learn about Noah hinges. It hangs on these next words. This is the climax, the culmination, the resolution, the appearance of the great hero in the story. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Moses writes, but God. Oh, that's good stuff. Man, when you read that in the Bible, when you read, but God, that's got to send shivers up and down your spine. God is about to do something great. If you're a child of God, he cannot forget you. God's faithfulness will not allow him to forget you. He will never leave you alone. And so those two great words, but God, signal he is about to do something amazing. God remembered Noah. When there's no human hope, when the flood waters seem to just keep rising around you, when it seems like the impossible just can't happen, God steps in. He has not forgotten you. This phrase, God remembered, is used over and over in the Old Testament. It was used in Exodus chapter 2. Now, it may sound a little confusing to us. Moses is using this phrase, though, to help us humanly understand God. In Exodus chapter 2, we find the Israelites, children of Israel, knee-deep in mud. They're making bricks as slaves to, the, to really the horrible Egyptians. 
It seems hopeless for the Israelites. Their babies are getting murdered. They're getting punished for not meeting the Egyptians' ridiculously high standards, and the working conditions are just horrendous. And maybe feeling a little bit like Noah was. Or maybe like you are. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Moses, the same writer, says this, During those many days the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from, sla- uh, for, from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and watch this, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, his promise with Isaac and with Jacob. And then God saw the people of Israel, and read it with me, God knew. Oh, that's good. That's good. In a sense, Moses is using these human terms to describe something that God is doing so that we understand God, which is really difficult because God's God and we're not, right? And humanly, when I use that phrase, I remembered, it could mean that I'd forgotten something. And so it was brought back to my mind. For instance, when you check Facebook, if you're on social media, and uh, it uh, reminds you of pictures that you took three years ago, right? Three years ago today, this is what you were dressed like. (laughs) This is what you were eating. This is who you were with. This is who, where, where you were. It's reminding us, and so you might say to Facebook, wow, thank you, Facebook, I forgot where I was three years ago. Thanks for reminding me. Now I know why I waste so much time with you, Facebook. You're amazing. It's because we forgot, and so we needed to be reminded. But there's another way we use that phrase, I remembered. My wife is really good at celebrating birthdays and anniversaries and special days in our family, and I'm just, I'm just no good at it at all. So when Meredith says she, quote-unquote, remembered to get me something for my birthday, it's not because she had forgotten about it, and then something brought it to her mind, like, oh my goodness, it's your birthday today, I better run out and grab something for you. No, it's not like that at all. Because for Meredith, she never forgets about my birthday. So when I say, oh honey, you remembered my birthday, it's not because she had ever forgotten it, but because she was acting on something she already and always knew. Now, That's the way it is with God. When Moses says that God remembered Noah, he's not at all implying that God had forgotten about Noah or he was busy doing something else or hanging out taking care of somebody else for a little while and then something reminded him of Noah. Oh my goodness, Noah's in the middle of the ocean in that ark. I gotta help him. Noah might have felt like he was gone, but he'd never been forgotten. And so what Moses, the writer, is saying here is that God never forgot Noah. And now he was about to act on what he always knew and what he had always promised. And by the way, there's a really deep, what we may call a theological principle, a Bible principle here in this passage. Actually, it's insanely practical as well. And here's the principle. God never forgets, so I can trust him. See, God never forgets forgets. And so you and I can trust him. Listen, if God were forgetful, if he had to put you aside to take care of someone else for a little while and then had to be reminded of you to come back to you later, then you couldn't ever trust his promises. In fact, when God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, that would be a lie, wouldn't it? Or when Jesus in the New Testament says, I'll be with you even to the ends of the age, you could never trust that. But you can. Because God doesn't forget. 
So we can trust him. Listen, he's never caught off guard. God's never surprised at anything. God is always in control. And in Noah's chaos and in the chaos of your life and my life, God is still controlling the chaos. So you can trust him. And you might say, well, Jason, you don't know what I've done. I mean, you have no idea the life I've lived, the hurt that I've caused, the the sins that I've committed. No one can ever love me the way you're suggesting God does, can they? Friend, you just described me and every other person in this room. If you're here today and you think you have to be perfect in order for God to love you, oh man, there is good news. None of us can ever be good enough to earn God's love. In fact, that's not how God's love is at all. In fact, just to be sure that we understand how much God really does care for us, his children, Moses adds this little phrase in Genesis chapter 1. I wonder if you caught it. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now listen, friends. If God remembered the cows and the monkeys and, my goodness, the donkeys, he ain't going to forget you. God remembered all of those animals that he sent into the ark with Noah. And Jesus said it this way in the New Testament, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Isn't that cool? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, that's easier, admittedly, for God with some of us than it is for others, right? (laughs) Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God doesn't forget, so we can trust him. So, there stood Noah peering out into the vast calm of the ocean, just like he's done for the last 150 years. And then just before he turns away to finish up his final chores of the evening and head to bed, he feels it. He feels it. It's a breeze. It's really more just like a whisper brushing up against his cheek. And so he turns around to where he first felt it, and sure enough, there it is again, a a wind. It's a warm wind. And now he can start to hear it. And and the wind begins to blow. And sure enough, the wind blew night after night and day after day. And for the next 150 days, the wind blew across the waters. And the, the waters slowly began to recede. Could it be that God was acting on Noah's behalf again? Could it be that God had, in fact, not forgotten him? Yes! Storm clouds disappeared The rain stopped and the sun beat down once again on that ark. And soon the ark comes to rest on what the Bible calls the mountains of Ararat. I don't know if this is how it went, but one morning I I picture Noah looking out across the water. When he sees what looks like a, a rock floating on the surface of the water. And he stares at it for a while, doesn't know what it is, so he keeps looking at it and And he notices that it seems to be rising out of the water. This is incredible. Hey, babe, you got to get up. Noah called his wife, babe, obviously. Babe, you got to get up here. Sons, bring your wife. You got to get up here. You got to check this out. I don't know what this is, but it seems like there's rocks growing in the water. Dad, could it be that that those are the tops of mountains? Oh, my goodness. They are. The water's receding. Those are the mountain peaks. Isn't this awesome? The family is frantic. 
God remembered us. We're finally going to get out of here. Listen, we got to start packing up real quick so we can blow this popsicle stand as soon as God opens the door. Can you imagine the relief, the excitement, the anticipation after being in the ark for all those days? We're finally getting out. But listen, patient Noah, he knows the deal. He doesn't jump up and down like everybody else is. In fact, he's 600 years old. He doesn't jump up and down about anything at this point in his life. So just like a dad, he gathers his family around and he says, okay, okay, this is good news. The waters are starting to recede. We are starting to see land. The ark has stopped. This is great news. But listen, we were in here for 150 days while the water was rising. We're not going to be out of here for a little while now. Have you ever tried telling your kids that you're going to go somewhere awesome with them, but it's not going to be for a little while now? Meredith and I are traveling out east this summer in just a couple weeks, really, to visit some of our family. And we, uh, we told Judah, our son, hey, we're going to, in a little while, we're going to go and visit Mimi, Meredith's mom. We're going to go visit Opa and Oma, my parents. We're going to visit some friends. It's going to be great. And Judah is pumped about it. He's so excited. But he's three years old. He has no concept of how long time is. And so when we told him we're going to leave in a month, he has no idea what we're talking about. And so every day he's like, is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? And when we get in the car, finally, he's going to say those same questions that all of your kids have said. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, buddy, we are not even out of the driveway yet. We've got a long way to go to Pennsylvania, right? But aren't we just like that? We want to push and push and push when we feel like we've waited and waited and waited for so long. And finally, God acts, and we think, good, let's hurry up and get this thing going. But the problem is God's timing is usually not our timing. And I found in my life that there have been times when I've wanted to push, and God just wants me to press pause. He says, hang on a second. See, Noah had already waited for a long time. He'd been waiting for 120 years, and he was still waiting. But for all that time, while he was waiting... Noah was walking with God. See, he was patiently practicing obedience. I think Noah was waking up every day and doing the next right thing. In fact, four times in this Noah story, we read some form of these words. Noah obeyed everything God commanded him. Isn't that awesome? Here's the principle for us today. Sometimes waiting on God can feel like wasted time. It can feel like we're just stuck in the middle over our ark, on the vast ocean of our lives, just wasting time. But here's the thing, it's only wasted if we take our eyes off of him. And so God's timing is perfect, so we don't have to waste our waiting. You probably are waiting right now. God probably has you in a pause right now. Don't push through it too quickly. Patiently practice obedience, like Noah did. Noah didn't waste his waiting. Instead of rushing around and pushing God's timetable, or on the other hand, just moping around and complaining about his circumstances all day, Noah patiently waits for 40 days after this time. And then he releases a bird, a raven. And then seven days later, a dove. And then a dove again seven days later. And that dove comes back finally with an with a olive branch in her beak. Finally, a sign of life, an olive branch. There was life again. 
It was as if God was drawing back, calling back his great armies and offering peace once more to the earth. In the flood, the waters had advanced and prevailed like an army. And it's as if God was sending out the bugle call at the end of the battle and they began to retreat now. Another seven days later, Noah sends out the dove again. And this time she didn't come back. She found land. Finally, a place to rest, a place to rebuild, a place to begin again. Now, it took another three months for the waters to totally disappear. That long for the earth to soak in God's judgment and all the wrath that God had poured out on it. And when it was finally dry, when it was finally ready, when God knew it was over, God broke his silence. Look at verse 16. God says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. God spoke again. He called Noah into the ark a year ago, and now here he is calling Noah and his family out. They'd been in the ark for a year and ten days, not hearing from God, apparently. And so this chapter begins with God remembering Noah. And toward the end of the chapter, we see that Noah remembers God. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now here's Noah. Noah is the man who walked with God, who obediently and, and patiently waited with God. Now Noah is, is offering praises to God with this offering of thanks. Think about this. After a year in the ark, God calls Noah and his family out. If it's me, There's a million things that I need to do first. We've got to find a suitable place to live. We've got to start building our homes. We've got to start to build a village. You guys got to start farming. Honey, you got to go to Target and get furniture. I'm thinking retro. No, no, no. It's a new world. Get something modern. I mean, we got to start life here again. What does Noah do? His first thoughts are of God. Before anything else could be done, amidst all the other priorities that must have been screaming at Noah, he does the next right thing. He praises God. So there in the shadow of the ark, Noah builds an altar. The first altar mentioned in the Bible. And on that pile of rocks, he sacrifices some of every clean animal and of every clean bird. That's why he brought them into the ark, after all, to be an offering for their creator. The Old Testament book of Leviticus tells us that this kind of offering pictured the total giving of oneself to God. It was almost as if as that offering, as the flames burned that offering down to ashes, Noah was telling God, in effect, God, you have all of me. Use it as you wish. My life is totally yours. And so the principle for us today is this, God is worth All, so we can give him everything. God alone is worth our all, so we can give him everything. I I don't know where the ark is today. I'm not sure anybody really knows where it is today. But my guess is it was a pretty prominent feature on the landscape of that new world for a, a fairly long time. So I like to think of Noah and his family and generations of men and women and boys and girls following them. I like to think that they looked up at that ark resting on the mountains of Ararat, and they remembered. Think about them. They're building a new civilization in the shadow of the ark. 
I like to think that they remembered the the tremendous and terrible judgment that God poured out on the earth to do battle against evil. But I also think that they remembered the incredible mercy that God showed to one righteous man that trusted in God no matter what. I can picture Noah gathering his family, gathering friends, gathering the children together and saying, kids, look up, look up at that giant wooden boat. That's a picture of our salvation, Noah might say. That's how God carried us from death into life. That's how God rescued us. And let me suggest that we need to look at the ark today too. Let me suggest that the ark, a symbol of salvation, is the very means by which Noah and his family pass from death into life can also be the very means by which we pass from eternal death into eternal life because today we look to Jesus, the greater ark, the greater savior, the greater rescuer, the one who carries us from death to life. But like Noah, you must trust him. You have to place yourself into his protection. And when you feel like you've been forgotten, trust Jesus. When it feels like God has hit pause on your plans, don't waste your waiting. When the world around you screams for your attention, give yourself to God first. He is so worth it. Friends, I believe we need to look at the ark and come to the altar. God, thank you. Thank you for how you show us who you are in your word. I pray, God, that we would that we would respond in a way that makes you pleased, that we would glorify you. And God, as we sing now, I pray that we would sing these words in a sense, as a prayer to you, symbolic of us giving our lives to you, of us coming to that altar of sacrifice saying, God, here's my life. I sacrifice it for you and to you. Take it all. You, God, alone are worthy of my whole life. I give it to you. In your name, amen.